Good morning, everyone. This morning, uh, I'd like to speak about what are we doing here? So speak a little bit about that and how we're going to be doing what we're doing here and why in the world we'd want to do something like this. And I'd like to begin by speaking about, just uh, uh, segueing into what I was speaking about last night, is this process of arrival, that we're arriving. And I find what really helps me on retreat, to really sink into retreat, is to imagine it, that I'm, I'm arriving, because we really are arriving in a, a radically different place and in a radically different time, both in this external way and also this internal way. And for me, I think that's one of the, the powers of coming to Viacitos, is that it really, for some reason, I think it really is the environment here, it gives me a sense of a different rhythm. And probably not such a hard thing to do when you imagine. We live in a crazy world, don't you think? It's really a, a radically different rhythm. So I want to share with you a, a description of... Um, the society that we live in, the type of people that we are. And the striking thing about this description is this was uh, written by Alexis de Tocqueville in 1831. And he wrote this. Actually, I don't know if any of you read Democracy in America. He he comes over to America and he has these really these wonderful insights about uh, uh, the budding of this country. And this is just uh, the beginning of one of the chapters in, in this book. And he entitles the, 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 this chapter, Why the Americans are so restless in the midst of their prosperity. He begins by saying, In America I saw the freest people placed in the happiest circumstances that the world affords. It seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung upon their brow, and I thought them serious, almost sad, even in their pleasures. It is strange to see with what feverish ardor the Americans pursue their own welfare and to watch the vague dread that constantly torments them lest they should not have chosen the shortest path which may lead to it. A native of the U.S., someone who who is here, an American clings to this world's goods as if they were certain never to die. And they so hastily in grasping at all within their reach that one supposed that they were constantly afraid of not living long enough to enjoy them. They clutch everything. They hold nothing fast, but soon loosen their grip to pursue fresh gratifications. Striking, don't you think? And it's still going on. So this is is something that's really deep within our within our collective psyche. So here, here we were really given an opportunity for a new rhythm. To exit out of that world and enter into this, this other world. It really gives us a break from, from the, these external influences and it begins to allow us to 
luckily begin to develop a new relationship to some of these internal influences too that drive us in unskillful ways. So really the space that can allow this new relationship, this new relationship to our experience to begin to emerge. So what are we going to be doing in this new place, this new time? It's really simple. It's doing this practice of Vipassana. Vipassana literally meaning to see clearly. Pasana comes from the verb pasati, which means to see, and then the V is usually translated as, as clear. So see, seeing clearly. And I, I want to share with you a poem that isn't exactly what we're doing here, but I think directs us... Um, or at least gives a feel or evokes a feeling that we want when we're, when we're doing this practice. And it really is about seeing clearly. And it's a poem by uh, Liesel Mueller. And it, the, the title of the poem is Monet Refuses the Operation. It's about Claude Monet. And obviously here in the poem, he's, he's gone to see the doctor. He begins... This is Monet speaking. He says, Doctor, you say that there are no halos around the streetlights in Paris, and what I see is an aberration caused by old age and affliction. I tell you, it has taken me all my life to arrive at the vision of gas lamps as angels, to soften and blur and finally banish the edges you regret I don't see to learn that the line I called the horizon doesn't exist, and sky and water so long apart are the same state of being. Fifty-four years before I could see Rowan Cathedral is built of parallel shafts of sun. And now you want to restore my youthful airs? Fixed notions of top and bottom? The illusion of three-dimensional space? Wisteria? Separate? from the bridge it covers? What can I say to convince you the houses of parliament dissolve night after night to become the fluid dream of the Thames? I will not return to a universe of objects that don't know each other, as if islands were not the lost children of one great continent. The world is flux, and light becomes what it touches, becomes water, lilies on water, above and below water, becomes lilac and mauve and yellow, and white and cerulean lamps. Small fists passing sunlight so quickly to one another that it would take a long streaming hair inside my brush to catch it, to paint the speed of light. Our weighted shapes... These verticals burn to mix with air and changes our bones, skin, clothes, to gases. Doctor, if only you could see how heaven pulls earth into its arms and how infinitely the heart expands to claim this world, blue vapor without end. Do you hear Monet's clear vision here? 
what I feel is important about this, and of course we're not doing this practice so we can have this altered vision that Monet necessarily has, but it's coming to notice that we, a lot of times, are carrying this internal doctor around that's trying to tell us that things should be looking the way, should be looking a way than they really do right now. Some doctor that has some kind of stories about how the world should look rather than the way it really does look. Have you noticed that internal doctor at times? In terms of meditation, it could be this sense that, oh, my mind should be calmer. That's the doctor, right? Or the mind's agitated. Oh, the mind should be less agitated. That's the way it really should be. This is, this is an aberration. Or sometimes the doctor says, oh, I shouldn't be feeling sadness or sleepiness. I shouldn't have such a wandering mind. Here I came on a meditation retreat. This is about concentrating the mind. And here the mind's wandering all the time. Sometimes this doctor in our minds carries bigger stories. Have you noticed the bigger stories? Wow, something's wrong with me. I'm no good. I can be the opposite. I'm such a great meditator. I'm such a great person. But these are the stories that really prevent us from touching our moment-to-moment experience. It's the doctor in our minds that feels like it really knows the way things are. But it really doesn't. So when we begin to engage in this practice, we begin to undermine that powerful status that the doctor has that we've given it. Have you noticed this dynamic in your mind? This doctor? So with this practice, we're, all we're doing is we're beginning to touch our direct experience, moment after moment, so that we're kind of going underneath that, that current of what I'm calling the doctor. Just one example of that. For example, if you're sitting here listening to my voice and you feel maybe your hands are touching your legs or they're touching each other, and you might notice there's a, a, a few different ways of experience that. We can have the idea or the thought or the description, my hands are touching each other or my hands are touching my legs. But you might notice that's different than the simple experience of simply feeling your hands. Right? Do you notice that difference? There's the thought about it, but then there's the actual taste of the hands touching each other or the hands touching your legs. We're resting more in that direct experience rather than the description of the experience. And I want to be clear about this. When, when, when you're sitting in meditation, I'm sure your mind's going to conjure up all kinds of descriptions of what's going on in your experience. We're not trying to get rid of that either. So we're not even trying to get rid of the doctor. We're just trying to see clearly what's going on. So one example I give of this is it's as if I have the flashlight of my awareness. 
and I'm going to put more of the flashlight of my awareness onto the direct experience. For example, the, the direct experience of my abdomen rising and falling. And the mind might be creating descriptions about it or stories about it. And I'll notice that, but more of my attention is going to be on the direct experience, for example, of the breath or the direct bodily experience maybe of an emotion. So I'm not getting rid of description, but we're resting somewhere else with our experience. More that direct taste of it. And what a relief. Have you noticed the relief that comes when you don't believe the doctor? I'm so grateful for this practice for that. When my mind is creating some story about how I'm not good enough or how things should be different, it's such a relief just to notice that, wow, that's just a thought. Oh, thinking is arising. Phew. It's not me, it's not mine. It's simply a thought that arises and passes away. That's seeing clearly. It's seeing the fabric of experience right there. So we notice this around any kind of experience. And what we're really doing is is we're beginning to exit out of believing in this conceptual world that we uh, live in so much. Concept is really important, but I think what happens is it it begins to strangle um, the way we are in the world. So there's a wonderful story about a, a mother and a daughter. A daughter comes up to her a mother and says, Mommy, pretend, pretend that you're surrounded by a hundred hungry tigers. So just pretend that you're sur- surrounded by a hungry, hundred hungry tigers. What would you do? And the mother kind of thought about it and thought. She said, you know, honey, I'm not exactly sure what I would do. What would you do? And the little girl said, I'd stop pretending. <laughs> Many ways, that's all we're doing. Was we're, we're stopping the pretending. We're stopping the story. Or at least stopping believing in the story. It's amazing the stories that we create. I'm sure all of us during this retreat at some point will be surrounded by a hundred hungry tigers that we're, we've only, the only way that they're created is through pretending. It's just another activity of that doctor. And I really want to point out, this is also for the tough stuff that can arise in our meditation. One poem about this, is, uh, this is uh, by Pesha Gertler. And the name of the poem is uh, The Healing Time. Because it really is, have you noticed, I'm I'm sure many of you have noticed who have done this practice for a while, how just simply being with the fabric of our experience really can transform our relationship to what's arising within our experience. So she begins, she says, Finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. I just want to stop there. I, I find that so striking. Many times this can happen on a retreat. We come to a retreat. Retreat's about yes, right? I'm going to 
transform my life. And then we get here and then sometimes, for some of us, we might bump into a lot of those places of no. So finally on my way to yes, I bump into all the places where I said no to my life. All the untended wounds, the red and purple scars, those hieroglyphs of pain carved into my skin, my bones, those coded messages that send me down the wrong street again and again, where I find them, the old wounds, the old misdirections, and I lift them one by one, close to my heart, and I say, holy, holy. Do you hear the transformation there? That when I take my old wounds, my old misdirections, and I lift them and I hold them close to my heart, really that's what we're doing here. I'm holding my experience close to my heart so I have that kindness, that acceptance, I'm aware of it, and it transforms, transforms those old hurts into something that's holy, something that's sacred. So how are we going to do this? How are we going to engage in seeing clearly? This activity of seeing the way things are in this moment. It's really simple. We're just going to be on retreat. I want to talk a little bit about this quality of being on retreat. And actually, I want to take a little bit of a, a Tibetan view of this from Tibetan Buddhism, which can be, can be helpful. The... Uh, the Tibetan word for retreat is actually sam, which means boundary or boundary line. And they, and they talk about retreat on these different levels. One level is uh, this outer retreat. And what, what's meant by outer retreat is that when we go on retreat, we enter into a, an environment that's conducive to this practice. And we stay here. So we have a boundary around it. We're going to be here for the retreat. We're not going to go into Taos at night to check our email and to use our cell phones. This is, this is the boundary. Here we are at Vaisitos. And so we have the outer retreat of being in the bounds of, of this forest. And, and just right there, I want to point out how supportive that is for our practice. Incredibly supportive, the outdoors. There was a, a, a Thai forest master by the name of uh, uh, the late Ajahn Mun, who, uh, just an impressive practitioner. He was this, this Thai monastic, and this was probably in the 1920s, maybe even around the turn of the century, where he was really sick and tired of the institutionalized monastic system in Thailand. And he basically said, forget this, I want to find a real teacher that's interested in awakening. And he said to himself, you know, I can't find any real teachers here in Thailand, so I'm going to walk. <laughs> I'm going to walk through the forest to Burma, and I'm going to find a teacher. First of all, that's a long walk, I want to point out. So he, he walks to Burma and travels all around Burma to find a teacher, and he can't find one. So he says to himself, I'm going to go back to the forest in Thailand 
and I'm going to let the forest be my teacher. And that was his teacher, was the forest. And, and Ajahn Mun really became, really was in some ways the, the, the big father of the, of the Thai forest tradition that's really alive, alive and kicking right now in the West and also still in Thailand. And, and, and a man that had a, a very deep and profound awakening. So the big teacher here is, is the forest here, the environment here. It's our outer retreat. That's where we can find support. And, and Eric and I will probably speak more about that later on. So that's our boundary. We're going to be bounded by the outdoors here. And then we have the inner retreat, which is, is refers, to, at least in, in this Tibetan system, to conduct, which uh, Eric went over last night, which is really this ethical conduct that puts a boundary on how we act, how we are together, that can really help settle the mind. When, when there's this, this uh, quality of ethical conduct, the mind can settle. So it's an important boundary to have as, as far as that goes. And one quality of this inner retreat in terms of conduct that's so important for a retreat, at least this is what we feel, is silence. Something that Eric spoke about last night, that that's actually one of the precepts, is to, to follow silence. I, I want to say a few things about silence, and, and this is something that Eric and I have discussed and something that we'd like to try for this retreat. I think it's because... For both of us, so many times when we uh, lead a retreat, um, this is the precept that is, seems to be the most difficult for a group to follow. And I think both of us uh, are retiring this, from this um, uh, position of being policemen. So we're not policing silence anymore. And, and we really want to empower the group in terms of silence. So we'd like to say to all of you, it's actually the group's responsibility if the retreat will be silent or not. If the retreat is not silent, that's actually okay with us because that's going to be the group's decision. If all of you want to be silent, then that's something that you're going to have to carry on your own in terms of that. I think what we mean by that is, is um, one is, is checking inside, first of all, to see if that's something that you can commit with, commit to. And if some breach of silence arises, then it's going to be something that is discussed amongst the group. It's something to bring, for example, maybe to the Q&A. You could mention it to us and then we could open up a space for it. But we won't be deciding about that in terms of, uh, in terms of the silence. If it's something that you want to engage in, I just want to, um, I want to point out it's important to have the silence even even in those places in the woods where you think that nobody's going to hear you. I don't know how many times I've led a retreat and I go for a walk <laughs> and I find people talking and, or other participants do that. So it's important to really commit to this silence, not a silence of only when we're around others, but a silence that's while you're here. So please consider this. And please consider your commitment to it. And we actually mean it. Whatever you decide is okay with us. A few other things, just a a deeper uh, view of silence too, is that silence can be difficult a lot of times. um, 
just because a lot of times interaction is the way that we begin to uh, allow our systems to settle down. And I, I really want to normalize this. This is a normal activity. I, just a, re- a reminder, which is an important reminder, that you are a mammal. You are a social mammal. And being highly social mammals that we are, the way that our nervous systems actually um, settle down is a lot of times through social interaction. So it's very natural to have this impulse to want to um, socially connect, to, to get a sense of safety. But the cool thing about this practice, and I, I know some of you have noticed, is that we begin to cultivate a, a, and a, cultivate a way of finding safety and a way of, of opening up and actually a way of allowing our systems to settle that's in some ways much, much deeper than that. Where we don't rely on that as much and we rely on coming inside and developing a different relationship with ourselves. And I'm sure many of you have noticed the power of that. Have you noticed the power of silence? And the power of cultivating a new relationship with yourself in silence? So it's something you might want to become curious about. Also, I think the other important thing to know is that you actually do have an outlet to talk to someone. And that's Eric and me. As, As we were saying last night, we're available. We really are available. If something comes up that's difficult, don't be shy. The one thing that I want to offer all of you is to make this path easier than it has been for me. May my mistakes make your life a little bit easier. And I think Eric would say the same. That's one of our jobs is to make the path a little bit easier. And there will be these practice discussions that you'll have with each of us during the retreat as well. So there is an outlet. We don't have to, to deny our mammalian heritage all the way. So these are the boundaries of the retreat. We have this ethical conduct, and then we have the boundary, this external boundary, and then we have the innermost retreat. You know the cool thing about the innermost retreat? There isn't a boundary. There is no boundary at the level of the innermost retreat. Because the innermost retreat is something that happens within our experience. And within our experience, we don't need a boundary. So whatever arises, we're just going to allow it to arise. So we don't need to fuel what's arising. So if there's some fantasy that arises, it's not like we're going to be fueling it. But it's not like we're necessarily going to push it away. We might see fantasy, oh, noticing fantasy and come back to the breath. But it's not like we're going to have a fight with it. So maybe some kind of external boundary. But I encourage you to have, to have no internal boundary. So the way we cultivate this innermost retreat is uh, through these two qualities that's going to be the basis of this practice, which is basically awareness and acceptance. Very, very simple. For example, with the breath, it's simply feeling the abdomen rising and falling as we breathe in and out. Or it's hearing the sound of my voice as it comes and it goes. The awareness of it. 
but also the acceptance. It's just allowing the breath to be as it is, a natural breath. We don't have to control the breath. So those are the only two things that are on the list and uh, on, on the list of the innermost retreat. What's most important a lot of times is to see what's not on the list. Getting rid of things is not on the list. Sorry. Figuring out your life's problems ain't on the list. Solving that persistent problem in your life that you want to think about, it's not on the list. Fantasizing, uh uh-uh, not there. Judging your experience, that's not on the list. What's also not on the list is um, uh, trying to have a fight and desperately trying to get rid of um, figuring things out or getting rid of solving. It's noticing it and coming back to the breath. But we're not putting up a fight with those things, so that's not on the list either. One of the most important things that is not on the list also is we're not getting into this dynamic of um, judging ourselves for all all these things arising. And we're not um, trying to get rid of the judging. That's not on the list either. It's simply being aware and accepting. And I want to be clear. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that we shouldn't be feeling these things. So when you become aware of judging, you can label it judging and then come back to the breath. So we're not fueling them. We're not picking fights with any of this stuff. And this, this leads to this uh, very important quality in terms of awareness acceptance. And, and this comes under the, the, the category of acceptance. And that's kindness. I, I, I've, I am convinced now that kindness is the most important quality that we need in our minds when we go on retreat. It's just unbelievable how hard we are on ourselves. Have you noticed that? It's crazy. I really want to name that now. We're not here to cultivate more being hard on ourselves while we're here. If it arises, fine, be kind to that. I think last year on an outdoor retreat, a, a woman commented, I think this was an amazing, a, a fantastic insight. She said, you know, I came to realize that I don't need to cultivate awareness towards my experience. All I need to do is cultivate kindness because then awareness is right there. She really noticed that the true gateway to this practice more so is simply kindness to to, to our moment-to-moment experience. That was so on the money. It's really right on the mark. So I, I want to emphasize that and I'm sure we'll be coming back to that again and again. One of the things that can be helpful in terms of the kindness is just remembering that when Eric speaks or when I speak, the way we describe meditation, it's going to sound pretty straightforward and clear. It's just not going to be. This is such a messy process. And please remember that. It is so messy. With the breath, the mind wanders, you bring it back, your mind fantasizes about this or that, you fall asleep, you wake up. You judge yourself for a little while, then you come back to the breath. It's going to be messy. One image uh, that I feel uh, 
really embodies this quality of awareness and acceptance or, or describes what we're trying to cultivate here is an image I get, got from a, a Tibetan teacher. And he has this image of what we're cultivating when we're meditating is like we're the, uh, the door person, like at a fancy hotel or something. And that's our job is to be the door person. So somebody comes to the door, our job is to open the door. It doesn't matter who comes, your job is to open the door to whatever experience arises. So you open the door. Whether you like that person or not, you're going to open the door because you're the door person, that's your job. And that's all you have to do is open the door. It's really important. And to see that person or to see that experience, whatever it is, if it's a sound or an emotion or even a smell or a sensation, you open the door to them. Some other important things, though, about being a door person is that when you're a door person, that means that you, you don't um, have the choice of shutting the door on some people and not on others. Your job is to open it to, to all, all the people, all the experiences that arise. Also, though, as a door person, you're supposed to stay at the door. So if somebody comes in, you're not supposed to follow them to their hotel room or to the bathroom or to the front desk. Because you're the door person. You don't work at the front desk. But you might notice that, that you'll forget to, that you're the door person and then you'll go in to the front desk and you'll strike up a conversation with that person. Your mind will be lost in fantasies and thoughts and planning. That's usually when we've followed the person through the door. As a door person, we just, we just need to open the door. So when you notice that your mind has ended up following someone into the hotel and your, your mind is wandering and fantasizing, you just need to remember, oops, oh, wandering, oh, fantasizing. And you can come back to some sensation in the body or to the breath. So just be in that door person. Very, very simple. Just open the door. What can also be helpful is to see the details of the person that's passing by. So if it's hearing, for example... Noticing how that experience comes and goes. Like, for example, the sound of a bird. It might have a certain pitch. It might have a certain vibration to it. It might affect the body in some way. It might resonate. There might be an opening of the heart. That's what I mean by seeing the details of, of the person walking through. That's really all you need to do. Very simple. And again, what I'm talking about around all this is the willingness to be the door person. We don't expect you to stay at the door all the time. <laughs> That's a big setup if you think you're going to stay at the door all the time. So that's how we're going to be doing this, being the door person. So why? Why are we doing this? Why are we here? I'm sure all of you have your reasons for being here. So I, I want to share with you just some general um, ideas around this. What's the most important is that it means something to you personally. So these are some things that might resonate with you, and they might not. The way the Buddha spoke about this practice, this practice of being aware, the practice of satipatthana, this practice of, of these foundations of mindfulness, is that it's for liberation, it's for freedom. 
As Eric mentioned last night, that, that quote from Saida Upandita, cultivating a heart that's ready for anything. So many ways to describe this. So I just want to give a few that might fit. And I think what I want to emphasize through this is that I feel that this practice really can transform the way we are in the world, the way we relate to ourselves and to others. I'm sure some of you have noticed that. Have you noticed how this practice can do that? It can transform the way we are with others and ourselves. It'd be incredible. Over a short period of time, I was just speaking with somebody who had been has been practicing for about five years, and they were telling me how it's the, the practice has completely transformed their life. And I remember being with this person, and I was just so moved by being with him. Really completely changed the way he relates to people and the way he relates to himself. So one description that I think fits with this about being with another person that I, I feel like that this practice can go towards. And this is um, by someone by the name of Eugene Genlin. He uh, writes philosophy, but also has um, written a lot about philosophy and psychotherapy. And what he's going to be describing here is more about um, what he tries to cultivate when he's sitting face-to-face with a client. But I feel like that this also speaks to what gets cultivated when we do this practice, what unfolds with this practice. So it's going to be in the context of, of psychotherapy, but I feel like it, um, it speaks more to our daily interactions with others and the freedom that can come and the power of what I would call awakening. So this is what he says. He says, I want to start with the most important thing I have to say. The essence of working with another person is to be present as a living being. And that is lucky. Because if we had to be smart or good or mature or wise, then we would probably be in trouble. I just want to stop right there. It's pretty profound, right? Have you noticed that we usually when we, when we try to be with another person, we feel like we have to be wise or that we have to be smart or good or mature? Ever notice your mind do that? What a setup. And we kind of miss the point. We kind of miss the point that all we need to do is to be a human being with another human being. We need to be with them. That's what we're practicing here. We're being with our experience. When you're with the sound of my voice or the sound of a bird or the sound of the stream, you don't need to be smart or good or mature or wise. You just need to be. What a freeing relationship that would be with another human being. So he continues, he says, but what matters is not that. It doesn't matter if we're smart or good or mature or wise. What matters is to be a human being with another human being, to recognize the other person as another being in there. Then he continues, he says, so when I sit down with someone, I take my troubles and feelings and I put them over here on one side close because I might need them. And then I'm just here with my eyes, and there is this other being. If they happen to look into my eyes, they will see that I am just a shaky being. 
I have to tolerate that. They might not look, but if they do, they will see that. They will see the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, insecure existence that I am. I have learned that that is okay. I don't need to be emotionally secure and firmly present. I just need to be present. There are no qualifications for the kind of person I must be. Do you hear this? I, I feel this is really important, especially on a path of awakening. That he can be the slightly shy, slightly withdrawing, slightly insecure emotional being that he is. Because all he needs to be is a human being with another human being. And he doesn't need to be firmly present. He just needs to be pre- present. Again, this is something that we cultivate on this path, is this quality of being present rather than firmly present, a gentleness there. And so I want to point out that awakening is not this process of becoming, of becoming some human being that's actually not a human being, but rather to be free enough to be a human being. Just one last thing in terms of this quality of freedom. One of the things that some of you might have noticed through this practice is that through this quality of coming to see that we're just human beings and awakening to that, that we can start to go beyond the ways that we identify ourselves. For example, in that first story that I gave with, with the Buddha, He wasn't even identifying himself as a human being anymore. But there can be this quality of of non-separation, of connection that can begin to arise within this practice of simply being aware and being kind to our experience. So as, as the Zen master Dogen said, he said, I came to realize that mind is no other than mountains and rivers and the great wide earth, the sun, and the moon and the stars. So again, that this mind is no other than those mountains out there, the river out there, and the great white earth, the sun and the moon and the stars. So may our practice together during this retreat lead to uh, such a flavor of awakening. Let's just sit for just a minute here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.